invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we will read verses 1 through 13 here in just a moment. As I was looking at this passage, I realized that after about 13 years of preaching, I have never preached a sermon from this passage. And for a long time, I thought of it as just the wedding passage. This is the passage we read during weddings. Love is patient. Love is kind. A description of marital love. But you hear it just about every single wedding you go to. In fact, for a long time, when I read this passage, I could not escape that context. Paul, it seemed, was being rather poetic about the qualities of love. And it was only somewhat recently that I realized there's actually a lot more to this passage after all. You know, one of the worst ways that we can read Scripture is by approaching it as if we already know what it has to say to us. Paul isn't talking about love for the sake of love. He's charging the church to rethink their values in the light of their mission and their calling and what God is doing in their lives. In the light of Jesus, he's challenging the church in Corinth to grow out of their childish squabbles and into a mature faith. The words are all at once very pointed, but also very gentle. But what he's doing isn't merely being poetic or writing with elegance for the sake of elegance. He's charging the church to live out not only the surface-level implications of their faith, but also to think through the implications below the surface, or to use the phrase we used last week, to go deeper and deeper and deeper still. So, if you will join me in reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. It says this, If I speak in the tongue of men or angels, but do not have love, I am a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. The word of the Lord. There is a lot of gentle teasing in my home. You could probably, if, if you know me at all, probably know that. Tricks and jokes and pranks and all of it in love. And I, I read a story recently that made me realize that as time passes, none of that really changes. Some kind, the same kinds of things that happen in my home have been happening for the last 150 years or more. 
And so the, the story that I heard this last week, it, it's actually about Mozart, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, and how his kids would torment him at night, how they would play pranks on him. After coming home at late hours, they would go to the family piano and play seven notes on a scale and walk away without finishing that scale, without playing the eighth note. So I've asked Mark this morning if he would demonstrate for us. Mark, would you play an eight-note scale? All right, that feels complete. Now let's hear it with just the seventh. Oh, doesn't it hurt? It, he would hear that at night, being the musician he was, and he would toss and turn as that scale was unresolved. Mozart, in his sleep, was restless, and eventually he would have to drag himself out of bed and go put his finger on that last note so that he could go back to restful sleep. See, thank you. Mark couldn't handle it either. <laughs> Some of you are breathing a sigh of relief with, uh, with us up here. That sounds exactly like the kind of prank we do in my home. And the story, story gets better, actually, because uh, Mozart's kids learned it from Leopold, their grandfather, because Mozart himself used to play that same prank on his father. So it was, uh, it was generational. That actually provides for us, though, a way of approaching this passage, because Paul views his world and ours as the seventh note on an unfinished scale, and we are waiting for that resolution, that waiting with maybe a, a bit of eagerness for that resolution, that eighth note. We are in that space of tension between the seventh note and the eighth, and the scale and the world remains unresolved. But fortunately, the church in Corinth has shifted from anticipating, excuse me, unfortunately, they've shifted from anticipating that eighth note the resolution of their story and living into that future to bickering with one another and trying to gain advantages while living in the unresolved seventh note. They've shifted from a mindset of anticipation and participation in what God is doing now and next to complacency with what has already been done and living according to yesterday rather than according to tomorrow. If we were to back up only one chapter from what we read today, we'd discover that Paul was encouraging the church in Corinth to shift their focus. Some spiritual gifts in Corinth, it seemed, were prized more than others. The gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy or, or healing were given special status and special authority in the church. And so the church became focused on attaining those gifts that would give them status and honoring those who were gifted in those ways. But in the meantime, they lost track of the things that were central. They lost track of the truth that it was God Himself who bestowed those gifts, and that the gifts He bestows are given in service to His kingdom. They lost track that, that these were not things to be attained or that we should strive for, but rather that when they are given, they should be carefully stewarded over. They're not symbols of status, rather they're a tool for this present age, which is used to point into the age to come. Or, in other words, these gifts are not about who has and who doesn't have. They're not an indication of God's favor, and using them for the sake of status is to betray their intended purpose. 
tongues should communicate the gospel and tell the world of God's love. Prophecy should point the world to the age that is to come. Healing should bear witness to the ways of the age to come. Instead, all of these gifts have been used to divide and to compete. Today is Family Sunday. Our our students and our kids are with us, and so I want to take an opportunity just to speak to those groups specifically. And so to our kids first, I want you to know we do not have to earn God's love or prove to others that God loves us. Do you know why He made you? He made you so that He could love you, and He does. What you have or don't have or the things that you have done or have been done to you, none of that means God loves you more or less because He loves you completely, exactly as you are. And to our students, you know, maybe we don't strive for certain spiritual gifts today, but there are things that we are tempted to strive for anyway to prove our worth to ourselves or to others, popularity or status or grades. Maybe we strive to be unique, to be just different enough so that there is something special about us. And I hope you know you don't have to prove anything to anyone. Your worth and your value comes from exactly one place. Your worth and your value come from God because He declares you worthy and He declares you valuable. You are worthy enough to die for even a death on the cross. And you didn't earn that, and you didn't have to. And so I want to encourage you, don't let your worth be dictated by anything or anyone but God who has already declared you worthy. And our adults, and really our kids and students too, you are not defined by your hard work or lack thereof. Your value doesn't come from how you contribute or the things you do. I dream of a church in which everyone finds their place to contribute according to the gifts that God has given them, but the church doesn't value one gift over another, and however you serve, your church is grateful for it. We're grateful you're here because your presence contributes to our gatherings. Your value does not come from your tithing record or the minutes or hours you volunteer, but because God loves you, your church loves you. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us about these things, that the gifts are not to be used as symbols of status or favor, and they're not even really to be pursued. And that's the context in which Paul writes 1 Corinthians 13, which we read this morning. With this in mind, with, with all of this backdrop in mind, there is one thing that we are to pursue. It is not the spiritual gift of tongues or healing or prophecy. It is, it is love, not to be loved but to be a people who love well. Hear the opening words again of, of chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. The gift of tongues, Paul says, is worthless if we do not love well. If I have the gift of prophecy and, cannot, and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing to prophesy and to be a person of great faith, Paul says, means little if we do not love well. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. 
if we empty ourselves for the sake of ourselves rather than for the sake of loving others well, we gain nothing for ourselves and we have not served God. The whole point here, the, the thing that Paul wants to communicate to us is that if we do not love well, our gifts and our talents and our abilities, they don't make a difference. And while we are not to strive to pursue various spiritual gifts, but to steward instead over what God bestows, there is one that we should and we must pursue, and that is greater love. And just like tongues and prophecy and healing point to our future in Christ, love, that that gift that we must pursue, points to our present and future in Christ too. Paul sees all of life in light of God's future. We are on the seventh note of of a scale, anticipating the resolution with that eighth note. Love points us to the eighth note. And what does Paul, how does Paul describe what it means to love? He tells us, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. I've always read this as these are the qualities of love. We lift them right out of context when we use that passage for weddings and read them in romanticized terms, charging the bride and groom to to be patient and kind and trusting and hopeful and to endure. But Paul isn't charging newlyweds to love one another. He's describing for all of us what love is and isn't. This is what love looks like. This is what love does not look like. And maybe it would be more helpful to read it as these qualities are or are not loving. You see, patience, Paul says, is one of the ways we love one another. Kindness is one of the ways we love one another. But jealousy, sometimes we might mistake jealousy for love. Jealousy is not love. Bragging or arrogance or pride are not love. If you are prideful, you are not loving well. If you speak or act in ways that hurt or dishonor others, you are not loving well. If you keep score of right and wrong, if you can point to the date and time when someone offended you and you still haven't forgiven them, if you're holding grudges, that's not what it looks like to love well. If you take delight in someone's suffering, you are not loving well. Let's get a little personal this morning. I'm going to, to tiptoe into some forbidden territory, okay? And, and so be patient with me, and we'll name a hot topic right now. It makes little difference to me what, what a person's opinion is about vaccines, pro or anti or apathetic or indifferent or cautious or whatever it might be. I have opinions too, and sometimes holding opinions means repenting of judging people who hold differing opinions. And so if someone on the other side who holds a different opinion than you is suffering, if an unvaccinated person becomes ill and it satisfies your self-righteousness, or if a vaccinated person becomes ill and it satisfies your self-righteousness, you are not loving well. If you see something in the news that appears to support your opinion and you feel a smug self-satisfaction, that's not what it looks like to love well. 
And I'm not naming this because I see it present in our church, but because I know what a cultural temptation it is to cast judgment and not to love well. And now I'm going to tiptoe right back out of there. Paul's concern here is that we love well, because loving well is a spiritual gift. It's a practice and a discipline that we can, should, and must pursue. Arrogance isn't love. Pride isn't love. Casting judgment isn't love. Being bent on proving ourselves right or others wrong isn't love. Let me tiptoe one more time. The gotcha post that you might be tempted to share on social media, maybe you did share it, that proves how foolish people disagree with you are. That is not love. These are enemies of love. They contradict love. They are incompatible with love. These fail to love, and Paul tells us, love never fails. This isn't a romantic notion. If it is love, it does not fail. If it's only a spiritual gift with, excuse me, it is the only spiritual gift without limitations, and yet how often do we put limitations on how we love? We love people who are like us, or who agree with us, or who share opinions with us, or who love us back, but do we love others just the same? Some of us might feel the pain of love withheld from us. Kids and students and adults alike, this one's for all of you. If, if love is withheld from you, that is not your failure. That is the failure of the person who is withholding love. It is their immaturity and not yours. If someone does not love you the way you deserve to be loved, pray for them, that they would be open to a new movement, a new work of God, that they would mature in their faith. I remember when I was a kid, I had a desire for wisdom. I looked around at some of the elders in our church, and I wanted the wisdom that I saw in them for myself. They gave me something to aspire to. And I remember praying for it, Lord, give me that sort of wisdom. They were, they were patient with one another. They they led with discernment. They were quick to listen and slow to speak. And I, I was none of those things. At, at 16 years old, I, I ran my mouth far too much. I was brash and opinionated and had the world all figured out. As I got older, I, I discovered that wisdom isn't being able to discern or slow to speak. Wisdom in Jewish thought is a relational knowledge of God. There's a whole genre of Christian scriptures known as wisdom literature, the Psalms, the, the book of Job, that seek out the depths of trust and speak out of relational truth of knowing God in personal kinds of ways. Wisdom isn't about knowing stuff. Wisdom is about knowing God. It's about love. Apart from love, wisdom isn't an especially desirable gift. The, the ability to speak prophetically matters little without the gift of love. Having strong leadership skills matters little without the gift of love. No one wants a strong, unloving leader. Not really. The greatest gift, Paul says, is love, and that is our most important pursuit. And this isn't something wishy-washy, right? One of the criticisms I hear of pastors at times is, is that all contemporary pastors do is preach love. Like love is easy. Uh, Jesus loves us, and, and that's the end of the story, and there's nothing required of us. 
just, just love. No sacrifices, no repentance, no change and transformation. And I suppose if that's what's being preached, that criticism is probably valid. If love demands nothing of us, it isn't really love. It's selfishness. Love without sacrifice or repentance, change and transformation is just love of self. And that's not Paul's message. Love that is always easy and never difficult is puppy love. It's not the mature love of a disciple of Jesus. This whole chapter is Paul calling out people out of spiritual immaturity and into mature love. And he turns to a couple of images to do so. The first is the image of a child growing into maturity. When I grew up, I stopped behaving like a child, Paul says. Well, I want to modify that that just a little bit today. Instead of behaving like a child, I, I want to say behaving with immaturity. Because we have children in our sanctuary today who demonstrate a growing spiritual maturity. And in fact, if you want to know what it looks like to love well, they can probably teach us more this morning than anyone else. Paul's telling us tongues, prophecy, clever-sounding words of knowledge, these are things valued most by those who lack spiritual maturity. But when I became mature, Paul said, I gave up valuing the things that I valued when I was immature. Rather than pretending to attain certain gifts or symbols uh, of status, Rather than pretending that these conveyed spiritual maturity, I've given up the immaturity of striving to appear to be mature and pursued love instead, pursued the maturity that comes from loving well. And what does maturity look like in the context of love? It looks like love that doesn't need to be earned, love that isn't withheld. It's our first effort and our last resort, and it is all attempts in the middle, and even when nothing changes, we choose it anyway. Maturity in the context of love does not say, but. But is an exception. Maturity in love does not make exceptions, declaring that maybe some are unworthy after all. It loves all and it loves well. A sign of spiritual maturity is patient love with those who think most unlike you. I bet you can think of that person this morning. Picture them in your mind. That person who is most difficult, who is most unlike you, who thinks most differently. Think of that person and see if you can identify the but. Of course I love them, but. Whatever the reason is for the word but, consider that something to be surrendered. The second image Paul offers is of the mirror. Mirrors were made in Corinth. This is a familiar image to them. But we know that when we look in a mirror, everything can look backwards. The words on our t-shirt appear backwards. Uh, Back when I had hair, I remember this drove me crazy. I parted my hair on one side and I lived with the knowledge that I viewed myself in one way and the rest of the world viewed me in exactly the opposite way. I tried parting my hair on the wrong side one time to see what I looked like to everyone else, and it drove me nuts. And thankfully, I found a solution to that problem. That's what this present time is like, Paul's saying. You can see something of God's plan, something of what is going on, something of what God wants for people, But in the world to come, it'll all be plain. 
It won't be backwards. It won't be opposite. It will be revealed. We're called well to love well because we see the world through a mirror. We see ourselves first, and then we focus on everything that's behind us, and we see everything skewed and backwards, and because of that, we are unfit to cast judgment because we view the world through a lens that starts with us and is backwards anyway. And so rather than casting judgment, we're called to love well. There will be a day when we see clearly, and in that day we will be, a, we will be glad that we put aside judgment and chose to love instead. Because in that, in that day of clarity, we will see that others were worthy of our love. Others were in need of love. Paul's gone to great lengths to put spiritual gifts into perspective. Tongues and prophecy and healing, these are temporary, and they point ahead, they point to what's next, but they're only really valuable now. There are three gifts that last, and they're gifts that we're called to pursue. Paul names them for us, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these, he says, is love. Love is not a feeling, it is a way. It is the way. Love is an urgent matter. We are called to choose love every single time. But it can be a costly decision. It puts aside our own self-interests. It puts aside the, the now, the temporary, in favor of the eternal. And it isn't easy, but it can become natural. And steady, present love will continuously point a broken world to the healing that it can find in Jesus. When I was a child, I wanted wisdom, but as an adult, I look around me at the Christians I know who love patiently and completely and well, and I see Jesus in them. And that has become the gift I, I most desperately pursue. This morning, as we consider what it means to be followers of Jesus, I want us to consider what it really means to love well and what it really means to pursue the kind of Christ-like love that Paul speaks of as a most desirable gift. Our kids who are with us today, who in your family might God want you to express love to today? Does he want you to say, I love you? Does he want you to show them love by doing something kind? How can you show love today? Or students, I want you to think of the most difficult person in school right now. Maybe someone who has been unkind to you or maybe someone who you have been unkind to. How might God be calling you to be an agent of reconciliation, to place value on that person, to help heal pain? There's going to be sacrifice involved. How are you being called to love well? And to our adults, think of a time when being right was more important than being compassionate, or when proving someone else was foolish was more important than showing empathy and the love of Christ. Proving someone else to be foolish might be a cultural value, but it is not a Christian value. You are called to love. How can you love others better? 
love Paul charges us with. That is what we're to pursue. Not other gifts, not being right, not coming out ahead, but to love well. Will you join me in prayer? Lord, we praise you today for the depths of your love, love that we have not and cannot earn, love that is given freely, that transforms, changes, renews, restores. We praise you, Lord. And Lord, as we are being restored in you and renewed in you, and transformed according to your likeness, we pray that we would love as you love. We know there will be sacrifice. We know there will be times when it is a choice, a decision that we make, because it does not come easily. Help us to love all the same. Forgive us for the ways that we have withheld love and teach us to forgive those who have withheld love from us. And remind us, Lord, that this is not just a feeling, but a path, a way, a, a discipline. And when there is an option to love, or not to love. Lord, we pray that we would choose love again and again and again. We love you, Lord, and we give you praise this morning. Amen.